0: We invite you to stand for the hearing of the word today. We're in Ephesians chapter four. If you've been here the last few weeks, you might be excited to know that today it is only one verse of scripture. Ephesians chapter four, verse two. Conduct yourselves with all humility, gentleness, and patience. Accept each other with love. The word of God. You can be seated. These are not difficult words. We can read them in the contemporary English Bible like we just did. We can read them in any of these translations. The New American Standard says, walk with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another. Or from the New International, which is in your pews, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. We can move to a couple more translations, paraphrases. How about the New Living Translation? Always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Or Eugene Peterson, who actually has more words than all the other authors, mark that you do this with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts, but steadily pouring yourselves out for each other in love. Even if you are among the King James family and you want the 17th century English friends, it is not a more difficult passage. Conduct yourselves with all humility, gentleness, and patience. Accept each other with love. These are not difficult words. We know this vocabulary, we understand these words, and somehow between the reading and the doing, somehow between listening and acting, these words explode off the page. They're really a simple, the words are simple, it's like a Christmas present that says, do not open till December 25. Or a recipe that says, add one cup water and stir. But somehow between the reading and the doing, this explodes like like it turns into a piece of Ikea furniture with an instruction manual, and nuts, and bolts, and levers, and tools, and all the things. We know these words, be humble, and patient, and gentle, which is what love looks like, the one text says. Then why is it so difficult? Why is this a difficult teaching? We're standing in the seam of the book. If you were here last week, you heard me say Ephesians 1 to 3 and Ephesians 4 to 6, and there's a seam right down the middle of this letter. If Ephesians 1 to 3 tell us whose we are, then Ephesians 3 to 4 tell us what to do with that. If Ephesians 1 to 3 talk about the privilege of being God's children, then Ephesians 4 to 6 talk about the responsibility of being God's children. If 1 to 3 are the indicative, 4 to 6 are the imperative. You get it, right? And I suggested last week, if you weren't here, we all should be listening to this series together because this is the foundation of church, of community, of ecclesiology. I suggested Martin Luther King stands right in the seam of the foundation of chapter one to three, for by grace we have been saved, it was all God's idea, God's initiative, God's doing, it was God's dream, so that we can live as better human beings in the world, chapters four to six. When those first three chapters end, Paul prays that we be rooted and grounded in love, that prayer, thoughts and prayers, turn into actions in four to six, the holy lofty theology of one to three puts on its running shoes in this world in chapters four to six and Paul says, therefore conduct yourselves with these things, humility and gentleness and patience and love. That chapter four will go on to say many things, by the way. Big, important ideas. Like there's no difference between the, what we say the laity and the clergy. Absolutely, that's a fault. Those are false categories. The chapter will go on to say that the Spirit gifts everyone. If you don't know what your gifts are yet, ask the Spirit for that discernment. The people with the gifts are not just the people you see serving, everyone has gifts. Chapter four will go on to say, be unified. You you are already unified. Now work to preserve your unity. The chapter will say many things, and I can't get past this first word. Conduct yourselves with humility, humility. It's not a popular word in the New Testament. It's not a popular word in our culture. In the Bible, New Testament, it's only used about seven times, humility. Now, we know the word humility, the word humble for sure. Maybe you have uh, simple definitions, right? I think we see it play out often, and oh, that's a humble person. For example, you first, oh no, you first. Oh, please, you go, oh, she's so humble. Like Snow White met Cinderella. That's not humility, that's just kind of phony or we say of someone they're humble if they came from humble beginnings, right? They came from very little. Sometimes we say someone is humble when we compliment them. Thank you for bringing 200 burritos to feed the academy students. Oh, it was nothing. That's not humility, friends. That's kind of like false arrogance because it was a thing. So we say thank you. Thank you for watching the dog for two weeks. Oh, it was nothing. No, it was a thing. Say thank you. (laughs) Thank you for taking my kids for the weekend. It was, thank you. Right? This is not the humility the Apostle Paul is talking about, by the way. The Apostle Paul is talking about in the more ethical sense, as a virtue, a humility that happens in my mind. Be humble in my mind the way I think of myself. Because the way I think of myself is what contributes to the way I move and have actions around the world. Be humble in our minds is the biblical use of this word. In Paul's letter he means humility in this way, this deeper ethical sense. Check how I think about myself. Check how you think about yourself. Because those of us who think more highly of ourselves, we call that pride, right, in our world. We call that pride. That checking ourselves with humility is what moderates us from becoming puffed up with pride. I remember in junior high was the first time I worried if I was a prideful person. (laughs) Junior high already, seventh grade? Good Adventist. We came out of school one day, four children waiting for the ride, and someone in big, thick white sidewalk chalk had written all over the sidewalk where all the kids line up waiting for the parents. And the message said, go to hell, Nelson children. Filled with so much embarrassment and then shame. And then what in the world, what in the world? We had been talking that day that our family was going on a trip, a vacation, a Christmas gift to Hawaii. I rode home all the way from school thinking, did I walk around school and boast, was that me? I went to my room, I remember vividly going to my room, the tears began, is that what pride does in the world? Or is that mean children? Check yourself in your mind. You're thinking about yourself, the apostle Paul says. It helps us moderate ourselves for our own thinking lest we lean towards the edge, towards pride, he says. We're not so enticed by this idea of humility in this world, in our warrior world, by the way, in our world a little bit drunk on arrogance, if I can say so. (laughs) Arrogance is just kind of confidence on steroids, And this seems to be what wins in our world. We're not so enticed and interested in this world, in this word, humility. It's a difficult one, I think. But there are lots of voices in the blogosphere that are. There are lots of specialists who speak about this, books being written, social scientists. There's so much help if we decided we would like to consider humility as a virtue for our lives. How do we be humble? Well, the lists are, there's so many online. Here's just a few. Stop talking, implied is listen. Go to the back of the line. Pretend you're a pastor at Potluck, by the way. That's what that one means. Praise others, ask for help, admit when we're wrong. Give other people credit try one or two or three of these things and the social scientist tells us that these practices, more humility in our lives, increases our own wellness. It is good for us to practice humility. We have a greater well-being. So there's much advice in the world about humility and a greater well-being. But I would like to push us a little deeper, church. I would like to push us a little deeper, tribe of Jesus. What is humility when you're parenting? When the girls were little, we had a dreary afternoon after school ourselves when one of the children said to me, Mama, you are not right all the time, but you do have all the power. (laughs) It's not wrong. What is humility then when we are parenting? What is humility when we are supervising? What is humility when we are the owner? What is humility when the power equation clearly favors one over the other? What is humility when we're the child? What is humility when we're the students or the employees? What's humility when I'm the customer or the client? What's humility when I'm the neighbor or the acquaintance? What's humility when I'm the prisoner or the slave or the refugee or the owned? Tribe of Jesus, I want to push us a little deeper because what the world teaches right now is that humility, practice it because it's good for our well-being, but the gospel teaches practice humility because it's good for the well-being of all. Such a difference. Humility then is not to think more lowly of yourself, it's just to think less of yourself less often so there's room to think of others. This is the gospel teaching. So we turn to people like Mother Teresa who writes so much about humility. Here are just a few pieces of her counsel. Mother Teresa would tell us as Christians, speak as little as possible about yourself. See how that's different than Speak less. Teresa would say, keep busy with your own affairs and not those of others. Avoid prying to know things you do not, that do not concern you. Come on, this is a tough one. You wanna know all the things like I do? I wanna know all the things. She says, accept small irritations with good humor. The sky's not gonna fall if something happens to us. Have good humor. Be courteous, delicate, even when provoked by someone, she says. In Ephesians, the apostle Paul says to Christians, what we hope is that you will ventilate the world with humility. Not because you can, but because uh, Ephesians 1 to 3, by the grace of God, we have been saved. It is all God's work. It is all God's idea from the foundations of the world, from the earth. Before our time, God chose us as adopted sons and daughters, children, precious in his sight. Therefore, ventilate the world with humility. This is the teaching of the apostle Paul. Please notice in chapter four that humility is mentioned before unity. Now put your seatbelt on, church. Unity is coming in the teaching. The apostle Paul is going to tell us to work to preserve our unity. By the way, we are already united by the, the creator, the savior, the spirit. You are already united, so work to preserve it. But all the talk about unity comes after all this talk about humility, patience, gentleness, love. It turns out that before the church can have a structure, it needs to have morals and virtues in the world. That the most important thing about the church is not a structure, though we need a structure. The Apostle Paul tells us then evaluate your structure. If we were going to tidy up the church, which we've been talking about for week three now, tidy up the church means evaluate the structure. If the structure is not breathing and embodying humility, we need to change that. For the church, the world will see a unified church when it sees a humility from the church when it sees a structure that embodies and oozes and just drips with humility for one another. Please notice, Paul comes to humility first. Church begins with moral actions, with the ways we talk to each other and treat one another. It is from this position, by the way, now Paul, chained up, counsels, he counsels us to move with humility. We don't talk often about how Paul actually got chained up. Acts 21 carries the story. I'll summarize today. Paul walking around Jerusalem, by the way. Paul who has met Jesus, but he's also got troubles with his own denomination. They're afraid that the Jesus Paul has met will change the denomination, the rules and the structure they so love. So Paul walking around Jerusalem with four men. They see Paul. The religious people see Paul. This is the man, Paul, who brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They said this, the angry crowd, because they had seen this other man, Trophimus the Ephesian, who's a Gentile. And they know that Paul must have earlier brought him into the temple and defiled the temple. So Paul's own people are so angry, a mob breaks out, the entire city is stirred, the people come running. This is the language in the Bible, by the way. Religious people come running, they seize Paul, they drag him out of the temple, immediately the gates were closed. While they're trying to kill him, while God's people are trying to kill one of God's people, The captain of the army comes and says, what in the world have you done? And Paul's trying to explain, and who in the world are you? And the mob is so loud that the soldiers come and the captain of the army says, we gotta just take this guy downtown. And they move him downtown and they decide to get the information out of Paul. They'll tie him up and whip him. And it's in that moment that Paul says to the guard, do you know that I'm a Roman citizen? What are we doing here? And the guard says, well, this is illegal, let's stop. Can't actually whip you till we take you to court. So let's stop. They put chains on Paul. He goes into house arrest. This is the Paul in house arrest who writes the letter to the Ephesians from this location with chains on sitting in house arrest. Paul urges the tribe of Jesus, have humility. Paul trusts that the grace of God can reconcile the relationships between broken people. It is Paul with chains who trusts that the grace of God will make us capable to have humility in our minds to see one another. It is while chained up, Paul realizes more punishment is right out the front door. It's imminent. It's not when. It's not if they will punish him more. It is when. It is while chained up in this situation, Paul begs the tribe of Jesus, ventilate the world with humility. And if you do, someone might want to put you in chains. P.S. This is our teaching for today. The man who brought contaminated people into the temple finds himself in chains. We call it the ordinance of humility when we get on our knees several times a year and wash our feet the way Jesus taught us, I'm starting to wonder if humility is as courageous as courage, if humility is as brave as bravery, friends, if humility is not some tiny little thing if it's large and looming in our lives. It was in 2006 that the first group of people gathered uh, to provide this tour called the Good News Tour. It was a group of Adventists who simply wanted to talk about the character of God. That God is good and that what we see, when we see Jesus, we know what God looks like. And so this group in 2006, they asked an artist to draw them a picture of this ordinance of humility, washing one another's feet. When this poster went up in Seattle, Jesus, washing the feet of world leaders, particularly Jesus, well we can handle Angela Merkel on the end. But when we got to Osama Bin Laden, so it is the people who saw the posters in the mall and on the streets, I believe the city of Seattle, we can check their website, Phone calls started coming in to the Good News Tour folks, some of them who live right here in Loma Linda. Take those posters down. Those posters are so offensive. Jesus would never. And then came the second rendition of the poster because times changed and leaders changed and the artist created this poster. And this went up around town and it turns out that where this poster was in public They lost venues, they lost attendance, and the phone calls primarily came from the Christians. What if humility is as courageous as courage? What if it's as brave as bravery, friends? What if humility is the thing in our church, in our relationships that takes us to the edge where we're not sure we really can all survive, but the grace of God can make it happen? So we hope you'll come tonight when we have our church business meeting at 5.30 down here in the fellowship hall. You'll grab a bowl of soup. You'll sit down. You'll listen to a couple of actions that the church board has taken this last year. They are courageous and brave actions, but I'm now coming to believe that perhaps what they are more than anything are humble actions. That is, we would find a safe place in the church where a group of people could gather who, who wouldn't normally show up on a Saturday morning and wouldn't normally find they could talk about God in a sanctuary with other Christians, but they found one place that will open a room and together, comfortable and safe in their own identities, they can meet their Savior. That is the new Sabbath school class in the hallway back here. Come tonight and we'll say a little more about our part in the housing initiative for the city of Riverside, the mayor who will be with us next Sabbath who will stand right here with me and share with you how is it he became so, so broken over this topic that our friends without homes deserve our full attention in our city. It has not been easy for him. The critics have been lining up for him. It is an act of humility in your mind to think a little more appropriately about ourselves so we can make room to think of others just as highly. For in Christ there is not a slave or a free, a Gentile or a Jew, a woman or a man. In Christ all are one. Paul believes this and he's in chains. So what if humility is as courageous as courage and as brave as bravery? What if if humility is bold and risky? What if if humility takes us to the very edge of what we think is possible and there we find this large portion of God? This year, I'm praying for a church full of humility. Humility. Amen.